So let's have God's word open us up to Matthew chapter 28. We'll be going from verse 16 to 20. Now this is the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, Last week, I started the message by asking the following two questions. First, if for the next 20 years, you can grow in every way that you desired, if you can grow in your walk with the Lord, in your character, in your relationship with your friends and family, if you can grow in your skill set at work, and if you can accomplish everything you wanted to accomplish, thus fulfilling your purpose, what would that look like? If you can do everything you want to do and be everything you want to be in the next 20 years, what would that look like? That's question one. The next question, now that you have this picture of who you want to be, where you want to go, the next logical question is, how do you get there? What are the steps that you need to take? That's question two. The answer to the first question, who you want to be, where you want to be, that's your vision. And the answer to the second question, how do you get there? That is your mission. Or simply, your vision is the why of your life. Why do you exist? Why do you continue to go on living? And the mission is the how. How are you going to fulfill this? Last week, with this in mind, we asked the question, what is God's vision? What is God's vision, not just for the next 20 years, but what's God's vision from the beginning of time to the end of time, from history, the Alpha and the Omega? What is God really seeking to do? And what is God's vision, not just for your life and my life, but what's God's vision for the entire cosmos? As we started to ask this question, we saw that according to Ephesians 1, God's vision was for heaven and earth to be united in Jesus. That is the why for God. It's for heaven and earth to become one in Jesus. That is the goal of all of history. That is the goal of the entire world. You see, I think we are often mistaken when we think that the goal for the Christian is just to leave this world and go to heaven, to escape and leave to go to heaven. But no, according to God, the vision is for heaven to come down to earth. In other words, Christianity is not escapism, but it's restoration. Think about the work that God is doing in you. What did he do in you? He took someone that was broken, sinful, a mess, and what did he do? He renewed it, restored it, redeemed it. 
And that's what God is doing for the entire world. He's bringing heaven down to earth where the two become indistinguishable. And so with this in mind, as a church, we've decided that our vision statement as as a local church should be derived from this vision. We can look at the next slide. This, is, this was the vision statement that we share. The vision of Eternal Life Mission Church is to see God's kingdom come, His will be done in our homes, communities, and the world. That's the vision statement. Then the next question is, how do we get there? And that is our mission statement. Our mission statement is, if we can see the mission statement um, slide, the mission statement, the next slide, the, the, the mission of eternal life, mission church, is to make disciples who live out the gospel in word and deed. So the vision is to see God's kingdom come in our homes, communities, and the world. How do we get there? We get there by making disciples who live out the gospel both in word and deed. Now today I want to unpack this a little bit. Now there's a lot to talk about, and in the future I think we'll have ample time to really parse this all out. But I think as a starting point, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is a good one. Um, You know, it's estimated that in a lifetime, an individual utters close to 900 million words. 900 million words. But if we're honest, most of the 900 million words are unnecessary, (laughs) wasteful, uh, hurtful, uh, or repetitive. If you ever... um, you know, record yourself talking throughout the day and you play it back and listen to it, you'll be surprised by how unnecessary a lot of the things that you said were. Some words are um, unnecessary, uh, most are, uh, but there are some words that are more weighty than others. Words like, I do, or words like, I love you, or I'm sorry. Simple words yet impactful and life-altering. Now, of all the words that we utter, all 900 million of them, the words that carry the most weight are probably the words uttered last by an individual. The most impactful words are often our last words. Have you ever heard the last words of a loved one? Or have you ever thought about the last words you're going to say? as you depart this world. It's ironic that the most impactful words are often our last. The last words that we utter are filled with intention, meaning, and purpose. I remember when I was a young kid, my grandfather, before he passed, uh, he invited, you know, he asked all of his uh, sons and daughters to come to a room, and he uttered just simple words, two, two words, translated into English, but he said, don't fight. He asked his children, don't fight. Please don't fight. Simple words filled with intention, meaning, and purpose. Last words. You know, today's passage, Matthew 28, uh, records Jesus' last words to his disciples shortly before his ascension. He knows that his mission is finished In 40 days' time, he's going to ascend and go back to the Father. And so before he departs, he shares the words with his disciples, words filled with intention, words that Jesus intends on being the church's mission. There are three words that I want to focus on today, three words in Jesus' 
last words. The first is go, the second is make, and the third is obey. Go, make, and obey. The first, he says, go. Go and make disciples. Go. Now, I know this doesn't seem like much, but in the context of discipleship, this is actually a radical call. You know, during Jesus' time, uh, all rabbis had disciples. And these disciples were like apprentices, people who committed their entire lives to the teaching and the lifestyle of their rabbi. Now, to become an apprentice was actually super competitive. One would have to commit himself rigorously to the study of Torah, and then he would have to pack up all of his belongings, he would have to leave his hometown, and he would have to search out, of a, search out a rabbi who would accept him. He would have to find the rabbi, he would have to gain his attention, he would have to gain his respect, he would have to pass all sorts of tests before the rabbi gives him the nod of approval and say, hey, you can be my disciple, you can enter into my inner circle. That was discipleship in the first century. It was competitive, it was rigorous, and it was often met with disappointment. It's probably equivalent today to receiving a sports scholarship to a top-tier academic university. Many try, many more dream, but very, very few are selected. That's what discipleship was like in the first century. But what does Jesus do? What is Jesus' method of discipleship? Well, Jesus doesn't wait for people to come to him He doesn't weed out the simple, the uneducated, the emotionally immature, or the mentally weak. No, instead we find Jesus beginning his ministry, going to each disciple, and he goes to them, and he calls them. He says, follow me. It's like, you know, your child never even applied for a road scholarship, but the committee actually mailing you a letter saying, here, receive the scholarship. What does Jesus do? What is his method of discipleship? His method of discipleship is he goes to their homes. He seeks them out while they're at work. He seeks them out in moments of brokenness and vulnerability. Jesus goes to each and every one of them, and he simply calls them to follow him. You know, normally when we hear the words discipleship in church, we think of some program or some rigorous selective process. You know, if I, were, if I was to poll the church today, if I were to ask you all here, sitting here, are you a disciple of Jesus? I would guess, I would safely guess that the majority of you would say no under the pretense that you are not good enough. If I were to ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus? Many of you would say no. Why? Because you think you are not worthy to be a disciple. But that's wrong. That's wrong. Discipleship is first and foremost a call, and undergirding this call is grace. It's Jesus seeking you and I out wherever we may be, and when he seeks us out, he doesn't ask us for our resume. He doesn't check our credit history, but he seeks us out and he calls us to simply follow You know, see, you got to imagine this radical method of discipleship 
where it was the rabbis who would sit still in their hometown and they would have groves of people just coming out trying to be his disciple. But what does Jesus do? He goes and he seeks out the individual one by one. You know what amazes me about Jesus' method of discipleship is that the call is never one-off. He doesn't say, follow me, and if you say no, then he says, okay, he moves on to the next person. No. He doesn't say, follow me, and if you reject him or if you mess up, that's it, you're cut. No, that's not how Jesus' discipleship works. It isn't like the movie Whiplash or J.K. Simmons. You make one mistake, and that, that, that's it, you're replaced. And whenever I'm on the phone... Um, when I, whenever I'm on the phone calling a company, trying to talk to customer service, the longer I wait, uh, there's this dreaded fear that comes over me. And I think this is a shared experience, right? Where you're on the phone trying to talk to someone to get something resolved, and it goes, you know, over half an hour, an hour. And then there's this fear that comes over you. You're thinking, oh my goodness, what if my connection goes bad? <laughs> Right, ah, T-Mobile, right, what if the representative, while trying to pick up my call, drops it by accident, which happens, then what happens? You, even though you invested an hour of time, you go back to the start of the line, and you go back to the, to the, uh, to the, you go to the back of the line, and you have to start all over again. Well, Jesus' call is not like that. You know, Jesus first called his disciples in John 1. He seeks them out. He says, come follow me, and they do. But after a while, maybe it was disappointment, maybe it was frustration, the disciples leave Jesus. They go back to their hometowns. They go back to their fishing boats. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what, forget them. They left me already. No, he actually goes back to them. He goes back to them while they're fishing. He goes back to them while while they are in their hometown. And he says, the same words, come follow me, follow me. Over and over again, Jesus is seeking out his disciples. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he's crucified and captured, when he dies and rises again, he notices that the disciples have scattered. They've denied him. They've left him. And Jesus doesn't show up saying, guys, after all that I've done for you, you've left me again? No, he seeks them out. He seeks them out in his resurrected body with the nail marks still in his hands, and he says, come follow me. Over and over and over again, Jesus' method of discipleship is to seek them out and to call them, follow me, follow me, follow me. And that's what Jesus is calling the church to do. He's saying, go, go. Go. Seek out people. Go. Don't wait for the people to come. You see, the mission of the church is not to wait for the ultra-qualified and the highly motivated to come. No, but it's for the church to go out and seek everyone. The accepted and the rejected, the rich and the poor, the oppressor and the vulnerable. It's to go to them and issue the same call. Come, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus over and over and over again. Would you follow Jesus? Would you follow Jesus? You know, what we miss sometimes is that um, 
I mean, Jesus' followers, uh, they were a small minority. There were 11 disciples, and maybe gathered at this point in Matthew 28, there were about 500 total. Uh, this group was a persecuted group. Their master, their Lord, was someone who was condemned as a criminal. And you have to think, if you are a minority group that's persecuted, the tendency is to do what? It's to shrink back. It's to hide. It's to not be in the public's eye. Jesus had the opposite view. He says, go. If we as a church, if we are the continuation of Jesus' ministry, our call is to go, to actively seek out people, calling them to discipleship. Come, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's the first. The second, make. First is go, second is to make. Or more explicitly, make disciples. Again, I think the biggest misconception that we have about discipleship today is that it's some sort of program or training. Whenever we hear the word discipleship, immediately our mind goes to a 12-week course or a book study. Or more plainly, we just think about the process of discipleship. But discipleship is about the people. It's about each individual following Jesus and becoming like Jesus. You know, one thing I'll have you know is that the Bible never uses the word discipleship. And very rarely is it ever used in the verb form. But most often, the word discipleship, the word is in noun form. In other words, the Bible uses the word disciple. The focus is on the identity of the individual. It's not about the process, the disciple shipping, but it's about the disciple, the individual who is and becomes a follower of Jesus. Think about what Jesus does when he calls his disciples, right? He says, come follow me, and what does he do? Immediately, he gives them a new name. Simon becomes Peter, Levi becomes Matthew. And what is Jesus doing when he's calling people to follow him? He's giving them a new identity. An identity that's not earned or achieved, but it's an identity that is given. I will give you a new name. So to summarize, discipleship is a call. It is an identity that's conferred. See, this is where, church, we have to be real careful. It's so easy to fall into the trap of liking the idea of discipleship more than disciples themselves. You know how like we like the idea of community, but we're not actually committed to community? We like the idea of it. We like the idea of exercising and working out, but we actually don't like exercising and working out. You know, when I was pastoring in New York, Occasionally, we would get transplants from out of state. They would come to New York. They would join the church. And often, I would hear them say, I love the city. I love New York. And if I really wanted to challenge them, I would call them out by asking, what do you love? What do you love when you say you love the city? Do you love the lifestyle of the city? Do you love the convenience of the city? Do you love the options that the city offers and affords? Or do you love the people of the city? There's difference. 
That's completely different. When God says he loves the city, God is saying that he he doesn't love the art culture of the city or the restaurant scene. He doesn't love the startup energy. No, God loves the people. And whenever people say, I love the city or I love the neighborhood, what do you actually love? You love all that it offers or do you actually love the people? You know, in a similar vein, I've met Christians who were passionate about discipleship, but they didn't like people. They loved discipleship, the idea of it, the process of it. But when, you have, when they're called to actually love people, to make people into disciples, they don't enjoy that. You see, the question that we as a church have to constantly be asking is, do we have discipleship programs Or are we making disciples? Go and make disciples. The focus is on the individual and his or her identity. Go make disciples. And the final emphasis is obey. If we look at the verse, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is why in our mission statement, we've actually made explicit that the mission is to make disciples who live out the gospel both in word and deed. And so our mission as a church is not just to, you know, make disciples who subscribe to the gospel, who affiliate with the gospel, or who identify with the gospel, but the mission of the church is to make disciples who live out the gospel. Now, church, I don't want to be misunderstood at this point. You know, after talking about grace and calling and identity, I'm not trying to sneak obedience in through the back door. But I want you to think about obedience and God's call or Christ's call to obedience as something just as radical as the initial call. As we saw when Christ says, go and make disciples. And we saw that the way in which Jesus begins discipleship is by first going and seeking out and calling. How radical that was. Also, this call to obedience, to obey Christ, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, that is equally a radical call. You know, in today's world, obedience and conformity is often seen as oppressive. We think that it robs us of our freedom and our autonomy. But when Jesus says, follow me, obey me, it's not so that Jesus can rob us of any joy and freedom, but it's so that he can give us a joy and a freedom that this world does not know. There's a, um, a well-known Renaissance painter by the name of Filipino Lippi. And um, he has a number of uh, acclaimed paintings. But of them, there's this one painting that hangs at London's National Gallery. I have it up for you. It's a painting of Virgin Mary uh, holding baby Jesus and two saints by her side. Now, many of Filipino Lippi's paintings are acclaimed, but this one has puzzled art critics for centuries. Now, Filipino Lippi is a great painter, but this one, there's something wrong with it. And critics have remarked that the proportions are just out of touch, that 
these saints that are knelt down, they look awkward, and that Mary's gaze is, there's something wrong with it. There's this one critic by the name of Robert Cumming, um, who, while looking at this painting, realized that the perspective was wrong. The reason why this painting was never well received and it was criticized, while it looked, the reason why the mountains or the background looked like they were all out of proportions, that they were going to fall over, is because he had the wrong perspective. And while looking at it one day, he realized, you know what, this painting wasn't meant to be hung up in a gallery to be looked at. But this painting was originally designed to be an altarpiece hanging at a place of prayer. And so, at a public gallery, Robert Cumming, this art critic, kneels down before the painting. He gets into the position that the painter originally had intended that, this, that the perspective that it would be seen in. He drops to his knees, and he sees something that for generations had been missed by art critics alike. From this new position on his knees, He saw himself, he saw, he found himself gazing at a perfectly proportioned piece. The foreground, which had looked awkward, had moved naturally to the background. And the saints, which seemed misplaced, they actually fell aligned. And Mary's gaze, which looked as though she was looking somewhere out, as he got down to his knees, he saw that she was staring directly at him. When he got down onto his knees, when he finally got down into a place of prayer, he started to see something that he had never seen before. He saw beauty. He saw glory. You know, Cummings, he notes that it's only in this position, it's only in this perspective that you can see what the original painter had intended. And you can see this piece for all of its glory and all of its weight. Church, friends, the call to discipleship, the call to obey Jesus in everything could only be received with joy when we get down into a place of humility in a place of our knees, when we see what God is trying to do in our lives Yes, if we're just sitting in the pews thinking, you know what, this Jesus, what is he doing? Is he just trying to get us to obey? Then we'll never receive it the way that he had intended. But as we get on our knees, as we get into a position of humility, there we can finally see what Christ has intended. Obedience is not to strip us of joy, to rob us of freedom, but it's to give us something that this world cannot offer. Friends, the mission of the church, why do we exist? It's to see heaven and earth be united. How do we get there? It's to make disciples. The mission of the church is to make disciples. It's not to extend programs. It's not to offer facilities or services. The mission of the church is to make disciples. It's for you and I to become more and more like Jesus. The mission of the church is to call others to become more and more like Jesus. You know, this uh, mission 
statement that the church has to make disciples is bookended by two truths. First in verse 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then the final words is, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Christ gives the church this mission of making disciples who follow, who obey, he gives it bookended with these two statements. All authority has been given to me, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Promises of power and presence. All authority has been given to me, and I am with you always. I know, friends, that this seems like a daunting task. You know, as a pastor of a church, often I think, man, how am I going to make disciples? You know, we have trouble just getting people to come out to church, to take church seriously, you know, to read their Bibles, to pray. How are we going to make disciples? How are we going to make disciples? It seems like a daunting task. But when you consider the way in which Jesus did discipleship, calling people to simply follow him, seeking people out, saying, follow me, follow me. And as you think about what discipleship is, this, this, the idea of identity, of Jesus giving you a new name, saying, this is who you are, now follow me. You know, this task of discipleship, this daunting one, becomes quite simple. What is the mission for us? It's that you and I would follow Jesus. It's that this new identity given to, him, given to us by way of his death and resurrection, that this would be a lived identity, that this would be an identity that would continue to live out in our lives, that we follow Jesus, and that we obey him with joy and gladness. This morning, would you get into a position of humility and see discipleship, see the call to follow him as one of beauty, joy, and glory? Would you pray with me at this time? You know, the, uh, the task or the journey of discipleship, uh, being a disciple, is, is never a smooth one. It's never a linear one. As we find in Scripture and the Gospels, the disciples often desert Jesus. They leave Jesus. They deny Jesus. They turn away from Him. They reject Him. They misunderstand Him. And again and again and again, Jesus seeks them out. He says, follow me, follow me, follow me. I don't know where each and every one of you, what point you are at. I don't know the exact journey you've been on. Maybe you followed Jesus at some point, and then you were disappointed. This is not what I thought it would be. Maybe you followed Jesus, and then you were frustrated. Maybe you never followed Jesus. Maybe you just heard the call and were hesitant. Maybe you followed Jesus. But at some critical point in your life, you rejected him and denied him. Whatever point or marker you're at, it's not a unique one. It's not unfamiliar to scripture and to the followers of Jesus.
But the point is not to try to retrace that, to explain yourself. But the point now is for you to simply hear his call. Follow me. Come follow me. Would you hear his plead? Would you hear his call? Would you see his authority in heaven and earth? Would you see his promise that he is with you always? And would you answer yes? I will follow you. Would you see his call of obedience not as an oppressive and restrictive one, but as a glorious one, as one filled with joy and freedom, joy and freedom that this world cannot offer? Wherever you may be at, whatever past or history you may have, the call this morning that Jesus gives to you is follow me, follow me. Would you respond at this time in prayer? Would you take the next few minutes hearing Christ's call and responding to him at this time? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we all kneel before you this morning with different pasts and history, with different backgrounds. We all come before you this morning hearing your call to follow you. And we want to say yes. We want to leave the things that we've been so occupied by, and we want to follow you, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that this call isn't just a call to subscribe, to be affiliated with, but it's a call to obey, to submit, and to give our lives to. Father, we thank you that you are calling us this morning to live in the identity that you have given to us, a new name that you have conferred onto us. as your beloved. Father, we thank you for calling us out of slavery. And we thank you that through the act of discipleship, you are taking the slavery out of us now, molding us to become more and more like you. And so, God, we pray that as a church, that this would be the mission that we have. It's not to extend services and programs, but it's to make disciples, individuals who look like Jesus more and more and more each day. And so, God, this morning, would you uh, amaze us with your glory? 
would you show us your beauty? Would you show and reveal to us that this, being a disciple, is not a rugged task, but it's one filled with joy. It's one filled with glory and beauty. Would you captivate us this morning once again to follow you? We thank you, and in Jesus' name,